Welcome everybody back to Bible Talk, our PCF podcast. My name is Anna and I'm here with Sky and Brenea and we're all on staff together with Princeton Christian Fellowship. Hey there everyone, I'm Brenea, so glad to be here. Hello, I'm Sky. Glad you're listening. Yeah, so it's a joy just to be on this podcast with you guys. So thanks for joining together. And we had some technical problems that got us with the late start. And everyone's just so patient with one another. Thank you so much. So in this episode, we are excited to talk through the lesson three of the drama of redemption. So this week, we'll be focusing on Genesis chapter three. Um, Now, we just started at the beginning of the Bible, and we've covered one chapter per lesson. So some of you might be saying, wait, how many chapters are there in the Bible? Are we just going to take this one at a time? And then, like me, you might have Googled it and found that there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. So if we kept up this pace, uh, it would take us about 23 years to get through this study, assuming a once a week lesson. So that might be a little too long. (laughs) But have no fear. That's not what we're going to do. But we're just spending a lot of time in these first three chapters because they are foundational to our understanding of what are some of the core truths of Christianity. Because as as we've talked about in the other podcasts, all religions are going to try to answer these three questions. What is the nature of God or gods or the religious ultimate? What is the nature of the world and humanity? That's the second question. And then the third question is, what is a way of salvation or enlightenment? So every religion is trying to answer these questions, and we want to understand Christianity's answers to these questions. And Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are a core part of that. And that's why we're taking the time to discuss them and to to see um, where these questions start to be answered. So in the nature of God, we really saw a lot in Genesis 1 and 2 about our creator God. We also saw some about ourselves as human beings created in the image of God, which partially answers the second question. But we're also going to learn more about the world and humanity in Genesis 3 because we're going to find that the world and humanity are broken by sin. And therefore, we do have the need of salvation. And the way that that need is understood will also indicate what kind of salvation is coming down um, in history. And so that's the sort of teaser trailer for our study of Genesis 3. All right, so we've got a lot to go through today, so we're just going to launch right in. So first of all, we want to refresh ourselves from chapter 2 about what God's command to Adam and Eve in the garden was. So Sky, can you read Genesis 2, 15 through 17? And then maybe Brenea, you can give us your take on it. Genesis 2, 15-17 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Yeah, thanks for reading that, Sky. So like you said, Anna, last week we went through Genesis 2 and before that Genesis 1. Um, and we really focused last week on how we are God's image bearer. So like we belong to God. God created us and he is rightfully our authority and we are to submit to him. Um, but, you know, God does not treat us as hostages, right? Like forcing us to obey him. Um, and we're not robots either. Like we don't have to obey him. It's a choice. It's relational. We talked about how God is relational. Um, and so the man and woman could choose to obey God 
or they could choose to disobey him. Um, and so the idea, right, the most ideal thing would be that we would obey out of love. We're like, wow, God is good. This is paradise. Like my food grows from trees. Um, and like, I, like my life is good. I am going to obey God. And I'm not going to obey him out of fear or duty, but just because I love him, right? And I love this relationship with him. Um, so God gave everything to Adam, but he did put this one limitation on him, which was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much what we covered, that God was all powerful and um, he created uh, this space for us and we owe our lives to him um, and that he's inviting us to live lives for him out of love, but not out of force. Um, and yeah, Adam had everything except for that one, that one limitation. And also we see at the end of chapter two, there was this sentence, we didn't really talk about it last time, where it said, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And yeah. That's not just a, a random detail. That's actually telling us something about how they were in the garden. So what what stands out to you guys about the significance of this detail? Yeah. yeah and I think one word that Brene actually um, just used was relational. Um, and I think that's one thing that this detail points to. Um, it really points towards the fact that um, they, there was, they were in relationship with one another. And this relationship, it was a relationship of perfect physical intimacy that went with emotional intimacy, mm -hmm. commitment to one another. Like all of these things were in perfect harmony with one another. Um, they were able to trust one another. Um, there was no shame. There was no broken relationship. Um, there was no barrier at all between these people, between Adam and Eve. Um, so yeah, that's the one thing. Their relational, um, their relational aspect um, was without sin, without anything between them. And, you know, if I could piggyback off of that, um, like the in the relationship, there was just complete vulnerability. I just think about how being in per perfect relationship with God allowed them to be in perfect relationship mm -hmm. with one another. And so they could be totally vulnerable, invisible to one another. Right. Like when we're exposed. Right. Like now if we're exposed for anything. Right. Either physically or kind of with emotionally with something that's sensitive. Um, our typical response is to be self-conscious. Right. We try to cover up. We try to hide. Um, in general, we cover up things about ourselves that we're ashamed of. We try to keep other people from seeing them, right? We're very self-conscious. Um, but here they are in like their purest form um, and they are comfortable, right? That they are able to be in this space um, of complete vulnerability. So they're able to be completely known and seen by one another. There is no shame in hiding. And again, that's reflective of the relationship they get to have with the Lord, um, that that is how they get to be before him. There is no sin and that's how they get to be therefore with one another. Yeah. And I think it's hard for us. Again, we're so used to sin. We've never seen the world any other way. And so it's hard to imagine what a human relationship would look like without sin. I mean, that's just not fathomable, but I think it's useful for us to just stop here for a second because we're going to get, we're going to start Genesis three and sin's going to enter the world. But let's really think about the destructiveness of sin. So using our imagination, this can be both like sort of silly and serious. Um, but how would the world be different if there would be no sin? Like which careers would not be present? Um, what would relationships mm -hmm. look like? Um, and how would our hearts be different? So again, we could just sort of say anything that comes to mind because this touches every dimension of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. And when you said like what careers wouldn't exist, 
I was like, wow. So many. Like all of them? <laughs> definitely. That's not true. Not all of them. Um, there would definitely be careers that <laughs> were still present. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have doctors. Think of all oh, people who are pre-med and who are going to be doctors and all the good they do in the world. Um, but we wouldn't have doctors because you wouldn't have mm-hmm. disease. You wouldn't have sin. Um, you wouldn't have lawyers. You wouldn't need a judge. You wouldn't need a police force. Like everyone would get along. Like, yeah. how incredible would that be if there were no disputes at all um, and all of those jobs just disappeared? Like, I spent hours at the DMV the other day, and so like, you wouldn't need a DMV because everyone would drive through. <laughs> they would like, be honest if they didn't have a license, you know? Yeah, if they right. said, I'm a resident of the state of New Jersey, people would believe it. You don't need those six points of identification. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's so good. Thinking, like, yeah, even right on campus, right? There'd be no prox cards. There'd be no IDs, right? They'd just be... Yeah, that's amazing to think about. Well, and like even all the anxiety and pressure and worry and that comes with schoolwork, you know, again, we talked about last week a little bit how work is good, Mm -hmm. but we also know that work is basically a daily struggle because it comes with, even though we recognize they're part of us that it's a good thing to do, but it's clogged down by so many things that make it hard and difficult. Um, uh, so that wouldn't be present and work would be, just be the joy that it was meant to be. Yeah. And I think um, about how there'd be such joy in relationships because there'd be um, just kind of like harmony, you know, among mm-hmm. people, like headlines would look really differently. Like we wouldn't see inequality. We wouldn't see children suffering. We wouldn't see hunger you know, like just these things that are so real. Um, yeah. 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 And even on a more personal level, like just what our hearts would look like. Um, mm-hmm. Our hearts would be quiet. They'd be mm-hmm. content. Um, they wouldn't be anxious. And you mentioned mm-hmm. that, Anna. Um, but just thinking of like how content, how calm our hearts would be. There'd be no fear of being judged or fear of messing up or saying something wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is just, I mean, it's hard for us to imagine. It's hard. It just sounds like completely pie in the sky to us. It just does not relate to our lives. But the world was created without sin. And Adam and Eve were given the Garden of Eden to enjoy. And there was a time before they had sinned. Um, and there was a time before this entered the world. But unfortunately, that did not continue indefinitely. And we do, in Genesis 3, hear the account of how Adam and Eve fell into sin. And so that is where we're going to go right now. So let's read through the account. We're going to sort of read through in chunks of verses and then talk about them a little bit. All right. So we were in such a happy place and I just feel sad moving. I was was having fun imagining like no keys and happy relationships and no hunger. And oh man, sorry guys. We got to, we got to go to Genesis three. All right. So Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, so we start with the temptation of the serpent. And later on in scripture, we learn that the serpent is identified with Satan, 
um, the great tempter. Revelation refers to him that way. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So um, this is Satan tempting Eve. And also just to note, Adam is there. We'll learn in the next verse that it says he's by Eve's side, but he doesn't seem to speak up in this um, during this temptation to back Eve up or to reiterate God's command. He's just silent, which is very unfortunate. Um, and we also see in this that the temptation will escalate from the start to the end and, and the serpent grows stronger in what he's saying. So what do you guys see are the elements of the temptation that the serpent puts before the man and the woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the elements of temptation or the, the first one um, is seen in verse one. Uh, it's that confusion, trying to bring confusion. Uh, the serpent asked, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Mm-hmm. Just asking that question um, raises doubts about the reliability of God's word. Uh, so yeah, that's that first confusion. Did God really say? Yeah, and, you know, I also see kind of just the spirit of um, presumption. So, right, in verse 4, he goes, you surely will not die, right? Like, if you expand that a little bit, he's saying, like, I know that God told you you'll die, Eve, but, you know, God won't let that happen. He loves you too much for that. Um, So, right, the serpent wants Adam and Eve to kind of presume on God's goodness and God's grace instead of being obedient. And I just feel like, you know, <laughs> um, I relate to this because really as, as, as people, right, first off, sometimes I'm like, come on, Adam and Eve, you messed it up for all of us. But the truth is we all do this. Mm-hmm. We all say, oh, well, I know that I couldn't, I like I could make a different decision, but you know, God's faithful. He's going to provide. I know like I work really well under pressure, so I'll just keep procrastinating. I'll keep putting that thing off. So I think there is the spirit of presumption here um, that the serpent just kind of downplays the consequences of disobedience by saying that, well, God is good. And so, you know, he's going to come through for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were looking at verse four, Brene, and the <laughs> just moving one verse after that, verse five, uh, it reads, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good for evil, from evil. And those are Satan's words. Those aren't God's words. Um, but in that, it's kind of what we see here is um, part of this temptation is conceit. Um, thinking that Adam and Eve were thinking that, oh, we could be God. We could be like God. Um, we would know good and evil. Um, and we talked about last week how they were made in God's image, um, and they just kind of take that one step further. They fall into that temptation, um, as we will read about, but they fall into that temptation um, to want to be like God, to have mm-hmm. that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's not just wanting knowledge, but wanting to be God or like be equal to him in a way that they, mm-hmm. God has given them everything, but they're not equal to God. Yeah, it's just really striking. Yeah. So, I mean, just to expand a little bit on what you said, Bernaya, like connecting it to ways that Satan tempts us. I mean, we could spend the whole time talking about this because Satan's temptations are varied. But any other ways that like we see this dynamic of Satan, the tempter confusing us or encouraging us to presume or encouraging us to be conceited? What are some ways that we see that in our our lives and experience? Yeah, well, I think I'm that conceited. Uh, I just still have that in my mind. Uh, I think with that conceited, it's 
it's us thinking that we know what's best for us. Um, it's us thinking that, yeah, we want to be like God, and in that we want to judge what is good and right for ourselves. Um, and we even think we know what's good and right for ourselves. And I know I've done that, oh my, more times than you can ever count. Um, but asking that question like, okay, well, you know, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't good, but like, it doesn't seem bad. I think it would be good for me. I want it to be good for me. I think it would be good for me. Um, and it's elevating kind of what I think, what I want above, um, God. Yeah. And, you know, Sky, that also reminds me of how we do that, even with other people that we kind of think that we, um, know what's better for others, right? Like in that same way that that pride kind of rises in our heart. And so um, I just think about how conceit gives way for pride. Um, and, um, you know, one, one thing in my mind, and this probably just shows the nature of my own heart, but I'm like, I wonder, you know, when eating the apple, if one of the thoughts is I'm like, well, even if I'm not like God, at least I can know more than this guy right here, you know, like mm-hmm. that we do try to achieve more mm-hmm. than others. Um, and the way that we start to justify is by we're able to look at God's faithfulness. And then we just, you know, we're downplaying, um, yeah, the fact that he actually does have um, rules that he wants us to live by. One thing that always strikes me about the rules, um, you know, when the Satan confuses them and says, you know, did God really say, you know, Eve doesn't answer accurately. She said, we were told we can't eat or touch it and we will die. So she heightens what God said Mm. to something more extreme and then probably made it sound more unreasonable. Like he said, we couldn't even touch it. So unreasonable. (laughs) And I I feel like we do that. Satan does that test too when like, oh, God has told me that I shouldn't do X. But then in my mind, I start to interpret it as even stricter than he had said. And then by making it stricter, I'm like, well, that's just not reasonable, God. That's just beyond. And I don't go back and like check myself and remember like the original directive or the original command, which was not this straw man that I'm making up in my mind. So again, we sort of get through this process where, yeah, God does have his commands, but sometimes we put more on him than he said. And then we use as an excuse to reject what he's saying. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I think Satan really uses that in lots of, lots of ways in our own lives too. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. You know, if I were going to add one last thing, um, I would just say that we end up making it seem like we um, deserve more, like we think of ourselves highly, right? Like the Bible says to consider yourself um, in a sober minded way. And we end up thinking of ourselves like, oh, like I deserve this, right? I deserve this garden, right? When you did nothing to create it, right? Like I deserve this life, this education, all the things that we have before us when we like realize like this is actually God's hands and grace again and again and again. Um, So in that, I just feel that that plays into what you're saying, Anna, because then we start saying, I've done all this work. I deserve these things. And you're putting on these crazy rules on me um, that then can kind of lead us into a cycle that surely leads us into sin. All right, so now we've seen the temptation and we're resonating with it some, but unfortunately we do resonate with it because these were our parents. Um, And so now let's read about the choice that they made in the face of these temptations. So this is Genesis 3, 6 through 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. 
Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All right, so both Adam and Eve willfully, they hear the temptation and they decide to disobey God's command and eat of the fruit. And so in that sense, they sin, they broke this commandment. But sin, as we probably know, is more than just breaking a commandment. It's also the heart that motivated us to break that command. And we're sort of touching on that already when we talked about the temptation. But what are some of the heart attitudes that motivate this sinful rebellion? Any sort of expansion on the things that we said before, guys, that that come to your mind about like why they would have been driven to do this? So I... I'm really just uh, struck by that first um, first part. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And I just, I just, I, it really resonates with me that like, man, you can really convince yourself of nearly anything, mm-hmm. right? Like when you have decided that you want something, um, she's not at all going back to the word of God, right? But at the heart of sin, she's saying, I, I've decided that I want this. Um, and it, this is more important to me than God or my relationship with God or what he asked me for. And we make those types of decisions all the time that we decide that something is more important to us than a relationship or yeah, honoring someone. So I, I think, yeah, when you, to your question, Anna, what is at the heart of sin? Um, it is kind of selfishness, right? Like my own, my own desires, um, and her being able to kind of talk herself into it because now it's logical. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah. And that's selfishness. Yeah. That was the word that was just in my head as you were talking, Brenea. Um, it's really, yeah, it's selfish. It's just, looking towards what we want. Um, and it's also, I know with myself, selfishness also goes with uh, self-sufficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like when I'm only thinking about myself, um, then I'm trying to do things by myself. I'm not welcoming others and I'm not asking for help. Um, I don't want help. Um, just kind of that self-sufficiency. I think we see here as well that goes with that selfishness um, where Eve is like, yeah, I've been presented with this thing I want, and I'm going to figure it out on my own. Um, I'm going to plow forward with it. I'm not going to wait for God to gift me with something more. I'm going to go and get it. You know that last part, Sky. I'm not going to wait for God to gift me with something or more. Like we also see just kind of like a lack of, um, I would maybe faith and also just mm. kind of gratitude because God had literally given them everything, everything. Mm. And just said, but just don't touch this one thing. All right. This isn't good for you. And, you know, she still is like, you know, God must be hiding like that. That's what the enemy kind of planted. Right. Like God, he, he really is kind of like afraid of you. Like there really is something more. He's withholding something good from you. Right. And we know scripture says that God will not withhold any good thing from his children. But this is the lie that she was believing that God was withholding something. And so not only is she not moving in a space of gratitude, um, but then it's also this lack of faith, not trusting that God is able and willing to provide everything that she needs um, and is making, will make sure she has everything she needs out of his love for her. Yeah. And unfortunately we don't know the life trajectory of Adam and Eve without sin. We don't know what God would have done, you know, 
um, where they would have grown or, I mean, we just don't know because what happened is they made this choice. They didn't go to God and even ask him like, what should we do about this temptation that's coming? Like he said this, what would you say? They didn't even sort of bring it to God. They made the choice on their own and then they immediately start to feel the consequences. And we already see that in the, they realized they were naked and they sewed coverings. So like we had talked before, the naked and unashamed was a sign of the lack of sin, but now they have some sense of shame, some sense of need to covering and hide. And that's, we're going to see that continue in the next verses. So I'll read verses eight through 10 of chapter three for you. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So obviously God wasn't like lost. He didn't not know where they were, but it was almost more of an existential question. Like, where are you? Like, why are you hiding from me? This is not our relationship. And then, and then Adam gives his answers. So what is this? Yeah. What is this telling us? What do you guys see? Yeah. Well, I think simply it's telling us that this relationship is broken. Wow, you don't you don't hide from a good friend that nothing's gonna gone wrong. Um, so yeah, I think it just it shows the brokenness of this relationship, and it's not just one small thing. It's like something is severely broken, something is damaged, um, and it's really just showing how this love and intimacy that they had with God, that they had with one another, has now been replaced with fear, with guilt, with judgment. Yeah, that's good. And I'm also noting how God is the one who makes the initiative to restore the relationship, Mm -hmm. right? He comes and walks, you know, in the garden and he's like, hey, where are you? Right. Uh, An offering for for calling out because, I mean, they hid, right? So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, they could have just stayed hidden, you know, in in this this sense of would they have gone looking out for God? Um, and so just seeing that, that just is so reflective of God's character that he always makes the first move to restore relationship. And we, we'll see this as we kind of develop further, um, in the, as we review the Bible, but that like, this is his relentless pursuit of us. Like, Hey, I know that this is, you've, you've fallen off. You have, um, you've sinned. Um, but I, I do love you and I want to be in relationship with you. So, um, Yeah. Yeah, and we talk about, you know, how God just spoke the world into being. And in a sense, he could have just taken this moment and gone, end scene, <laughs> boom, out, you know, like mm-hmm. tough luck, you, that's dying, you die. But he goes for more, you know, he starts to initiate with them and talk with them. Again, he doesn't callously just throw off this relationship, even though they have sinned. And so before we go on to the next verses, just want to take a short moment. So what are Adam's and Adam and Eve's options here? Um, I mean, they've already chosen to hide, but now they're talking to God. So they could do a couple things. So what are some things that they could do? They could own it. Mm-hmm. Wow. They could be like, yep, I messed up. Help me move to move forward. Wow. Mm-hmm. They could blame. Mm-hmm. He did it. She did it. God, you did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they could deny what fruit us <laughs> no what's this apple core in my hand i don't know <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah 
they could do all those things. You know, I also am thinking about how um, when like they have all these options for response, but the fact that when God asked, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid that there is still, he just still senses the safety in the relationship because he could have instantly lied. Like, oh, I was just over here doing nothing. Right. But he's like, oh, I'm naked. Right. He's revealing that he knows this. Um, mm-hmm. And so he's he's saying like, okay, I know this is a safe enough space where like maybe God can just fix it. I feel like mm-hmm. that's kind of we what we see here. Um, yeah. Well, all right. Let's see what they choose. <laughs> Drum roll, please. <laughs> um, so verses eleven through thirteen. So God said, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?" The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All right. So what strikes us about their choice? So honestly, as you read this, um, like tears came to my eyes because Mm. this is just so sad. Um, this is so sad and they instantly feel the consequences and now they're trying to make sense of it, escape from it. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I'm just like the, how do we, what do we do when we're trying to make sense of sin? When we didn't finish something on time, we have fallen short when we've lied, when we've put ourselves in a compromised situation, they instantly start to blame. They don't look at their own hearts at all, but they're like, it's this circumstance. It's this person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so instantly we see them kind of like walking in sin, right? Like the mess becoming more of mess. Um, so that's 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 one of the first things that sticks out to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and specifically with that blaming, it's like they point the fingers at each other. They point the fingers at the serpent, uh, mm. and they point the fingers at God. Mm. Um, Adam, yeah. the woman you put here with me, like you, that's an accusatory you mm-hmm. um, and it's just like wow okay you're blaming your partner you're blaming the serpent and you're even going so far as to blame god yeah and it's just it is a come down from chapter two where he read his poetry like here at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and now he's like this woman you gave to me like <laughs> you know, not my fault you put her here so yeah this is they don't they don't own it they blame one another. They blame God. They try to get out from it. Um, it's just sad, as you're saying, Brene. I mean, we, again, we resonate because we know we do this, but it, this is sad that this is the human reaction um, to sin. All right. So, unfortunately, there are consequences for this sin, and God is going to sort of make a pronouncement of these consequences, and he's going to go through the serpent, the woman, and the man. So, we're going to read um, the verses associated and just talk about a few aspects of them. So, Brene, you want to start us off? So, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So, you know, there's a few things here. Um, First, I want to say that, like, God has to judge um, Mm -hmm. because that is the like he's he's a perfect good 
God, right? So there cannot be sin without there being a response. Um, And so we see that, like instantly we see him just moving as God, as the eternal, as the one who has ultimate authority. He has to judge. And so in verse 14, we see where he starts. He first judges the serpent. Mm-hmm. Um, God is mightier than the serpent and he is still in control, right? He has no rival. So he's like, Hey, you, this is going to be your place. And I want to make sure that that's clear. So he starts there and he shows that the serpent isn't even really like a formidable enemy in any kind of way. Um, and then in verse 15, we see that there's going to be an ongoing conflict between Eve's offspring. So that's us and the serpent, right? So, um, what this means, it's like, there's going to be a spiritual battle, over the soul of every single person, right? So as we're saying, like, we resonate with this because we're living, right, in the Mm -hmm. the aftermath of this, that this temptation, like, we're like, oh, yeah, I totally get this Um, because day by day we start to, we experience these things. Um, And then the the second half of verse 15, we're seeing that, um, but God will eventually um, triumph, that good will triumph uh, by God's grace through Eve's offspring, um, Um, And this is the first glimpse that we kind of get of God's plan and promise of redemption. We've been talking about how he had the plan from the beginning, right? Like nothing catches God by a surprise. So we see that really just the gospel is promised um, before God even judges the woman or the man. And I just want to like really sit there for a second that grace is promised even in the face of judgment, right? Like God is so, so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Grace is promised. Yeah, something we need to remember each day. Yeah. Uh, thanks for reading and unpacking those verses a little bit, Brenea. Um, I'm going to continue with verse 16 and just speak briefly about the judgment that we see on the woman. So from verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So just one verse there. Um, And briefly, I would just say that (laughs) it's really saying like part of the curse for women is childbirth will be painful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that every mother who can agree with, that every mother um, can really resonate with and is like, yes, (laughs) yes, this is true. Um, And then we also just see the, just the effect of broken relationships. Um, The woman and the man are not in perfect harmony with each other anymore. Um, that's just another sad reality and judgment for the woman. And then God moves on to the man, to Adam. And he says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. All right, so in Adam's curse, we see that the work that in the garden was a joy and not a burden of producing fruit and gathering and eating um, will become painful and full of thorns and thistles, both figure- like literally and figuratively the work that is set to Adam will become hard. And then the ultimate one from dust you are into dust, you will return. That was the original consequence that God said would happen. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Um, And he reiterates that that is what will happen, that Adam will die 
and that human beings will now die and return to dust. And yeah, that's really a weighty end to that curse. And it's weighty for us too, because the next verse of the chapter, right after that, about dust you are and to dust you will return, reads, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. So that is connecting us to these curses because it's saying Eve is the mother of all the living. Eve is our mother. And so we are the descendants of these curses in a sense, this sin. We're descendants of grace too that we've been highlighting, but we receive the effect of these curses um, because we're part of humankind. And so um, that is what makes this story significant to us and not just something that happened a long time ago that is unrelated. Um, and we do, I just want to say there's a hint here. So we have a macro problem of sin, like a human race problem of sin that started with these two people. But the Bible is also going to say there's going to be a macro salvation that's going to come through one man, just like sin came through one man. And so I just want to point you a little, hopefully, since we're in a down section, to Romans 5.19, which says, For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. So in this chapter, we are focusing on through the disobedience of one man, many will be made, many are made sinners, but we will also get to the many made righteous through one. So I just want to give that little hopefulness because it is a tough pill to swallow that we're sort of included in the curse of death. But we also know that, right? We experience death. We know that that's true. Um, we know that work is full of thorns and thistles. We know childbirth is painful. We know that our human relationships are broken. Um, so let's pause here again before we read more. Okay, so God has pronounced these curses. And what are the possibilities here for the human beings and their relationship with God? Like, what are the ways this could go? Yeah, I think one way it could go um, is um, if God wasn't as loving as he was or is, um, that there's just this separation. Um, there's no restoration. It's like we are too broken. We are too hurt. Um, and we're going to go our separate ways and not communicate. Yeah, God also could have just kind of um, uh, disinherited them, essentially, you know, as their children. You know, in the end, he says, you know, for for dust you are and dust you will return. Um, and that's hearkening to, he said, hey, if you eat this, like, you will die. But it's also just remembering, like, hey, like, I created you and you are literally just the ground that I breathe life into, right? Like our value, as we talked about in Genesis 1 and 2, comes from being made in the image of God. Um, and so he really could have just like stripped us of that um, if he were, is not, if he were not, right? The good <laughs> God that he is. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I think of when we read the creation counts the last couple of weeks, um, thinking about where he gives dominion to, like he has power to work the earth, to rule over um, the animals and yeah he could have just taken that away you don't have dominion anymore mm. you will be as the ant as mm. the deer mm. as the pig mm -hmm. yeah so we we sort of saw a glimmer of hope in the 
the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent, even though he will bruise his heel. And we're also going to see more separation, but also some hint of hope in the final verses of chapter three. So Sky, do you mind reading those verses for us? Yeah. So the final verses in Genesis three, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat of it and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So with those last two verses, um, it's <laughs> it's a good thing that God is the one mm-hmm. um, who responds to this. Um, and we've already seen how he reaches out, how he asks. Um, because if we were writing this story, uh, Adam and Eve would just say, like, I'm sorry, and try to win God's favor back, do a bunch of good things, and maybe they'll cancel out the bad. It's a really good thing, though, that God is the one who is writing this script. Um, because God um, reaches out to them. Um, Mm -hmm. He takes initiative immediately to begin to fix the mess that Adam and Eve has made. Um, Mm -hmm. He (laughs) sends them out of the garden for their own good. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he goes about kind of caring for them. He makes garments of skin for them. Um, He goes about, like we were talking earlier, um, of putting in this plan of redemption for the whole world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the garments of skin that, you know, is sort of a, in a sense, a random detail, but we've been highlighting this theme of nakedness and shame and covering and who's providing covering. And, you know, Adam and Eve's first action was to sew these fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. But that's not a very, like, comfortable or sustainable kind of covering. That's not adequate. You know, can you imagine sewing some leagues together and <laughs> what kind of clothing that provides? So it's interesting here that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them like he helped to clothe their nakedness. Mm. And we know that garments of skin are much better clothing than leaves. But we also know that an animal has to die to provide a garment of skin. Um, And so although it's only a hint here, we see the blood that is necessary to cover sin and shame. Mm. We see the sacrifice that has to come when sin needs to be covered. Amen. Um, And that God is the one to initiate and provide the way to do that. So that's just a cool thing about this, this sentence, which might not strike you, but is actually just a little hint to where God is going with this story. Other things that you guys see in these last verses? Yeah, I just would just I just would want to build off of just that last point that you said that like um, when it comes to sin, one, there must be judgment before a good and holy and perfect God. Um, I know for myself, sometimes you just be tempted to think about like, does there really have to be consequence? Um, and I think that because I'm not perfect, right? I'm not good and holy and perfect like God, so that there has to be. But also that God loves us so deeply that he makes a way um, in the way that um, sin, just, just like you said, like had to be atoned for in this is that blood had to be shed. Um, and that's just a preview to Jesus. Um, and that God provided the way, not their way of, you know, fixing it with some patchwork leaves, 
um, mm-hmm. but actual animal skin that was going to be able to clothe them and cover them in the midst of their sin. Yeah, so we see it is a mixed bag at the end of Genesis 3. We, God, we see God taking initiative, covering them, but also giving them consequences. They are kicked out of the garden. They do have to bear the consequences of sin. And ultimately, as human beings, they're going to die. And so that, you know, is part of the human problem. So in the beginning of this podcast, we brought up the three questions about, you know, a religion. What do they say the nature of God is? What is the nature of world, the world and humanity? And then what is the way of salvation, the way of enlightenment? So I invite you to just think about these questions this week in light of what we've read in the first three chapters of Genesis and to think about the Christian answers to those questions. And then also to think about how you connect to that story, how you connect to that narrative, because this is not just something that happened way back when, but something that is affecting us today. And how, how do you identify with it? Um, or how do you not? And if you're struggling to identify with it, you know, why is that? So these are the questions that we invite you to consider on your own, but also in the context of our small group Bible studies this week. And we hope that you will join us. Um, if you're not yet involved in a small group, we would love if you reach out to us and we will find a time that can hopefully work for you. And so just please uh, join us in, our, in discussing more of these really crucial chapters of the Bible. So thank you so much for listening. We know this was a slightly longer episode. There's just so much to discuss in Genesis 3. This is such a critical passage for understanding the whole biblical narrative. So thank you for bearing with us to the end. And we hope that you will join us again next time. Um, We're trying to think of a good sign off. But in lieu of that, if you have any ideas, you know, just let us know at small group, (laughs) any clever chants or ways to end. But in lieu of anything really clever, clever, we'll just say God bless and have a good week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.